Hello everybody, welcome to the Dharma Toolkit Daily with me Chandra Dasa and today I'm very happy to see my friend and colleague Stai Sihi who's back with us from Dublin's Fair City. And we're here at the start of an exciting week on the podcast because we get a little bit of variation. You won't need to listen to me every day, which no doubt will cause national rejoicing. And we're going to have a special series of podcasts this week for Earth Day, which is kind of like Earth Week in our world. But Earth Day is on Wednesday, on April the 22nd. Some time ago, a friend of ours who's very active in the area of thinking about Buddhist responses to climate change, climate crisis, asked us about doing some work with us around this. And in the end, we commissioned a series of three podcasts about Buddhist responses to climate change, climate crisis. It's called Hair on Fire which is an image from the early Buddhist suttas about acting as if your hair's on fire when you see the troubles of the world, you see the sorrows of the world. And we're going to be looking at Buddhist responses to this whole area from the perspective of ethics, meditation and wisdom. So over the next three days, we'll be releasing those episodes to listen to. But on each end, we're going to bookend it with a conversation just to kind of get a bit more of a discussion going around the themes. So I'm delighted to say that we've got some fabulous guests today for this to start our week off. And I'll introduce you to them in a minute. But first, hello, Stacey. How are you doing? Hi, Chandrasa. I'm good. Funny as you were doing the opening, I've been just looking out into the back garden um, in a friend's house and the lovely back garden here thankfully and I suppose because I'm sort of looking after the house at the moment one of my jobs is to cut the grass but I've just been looking out in the grass the lawn has suddenly been populated by loads of dandelions and daisies and I guess just the week that's in it it's been kind of on my mind a sort of a slight tug towards not cutting the grass not out of laziness but actually because I'm very aware of biodiversity and the fact that having flowers is really really good for for a garden I think it's just kind of an interesting an interesting sort of internal battle in my mind and maybe this week I won't cut the grass just <laughs> to honour the earth. I'm not sure how my friend might feel about that actually if I let that go too long. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really pleased that we have these podcasts this week to really focus on this area. In my previous job I worked for a small NGO which was about justice, peace, human rights and sustainability. So I'm very, very interested in these themes and I'm really delighted that we're having these particular two guests here today to talk about some of these issues. I think judging by their notes, it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Long live the weeds in the wilderness yet, as Jared Bunley Hopkins used to say. It's funny actually, that I say, because we were both involved in commissioning this set of podcasts from our friend Mary Salome in San Francisco, who's been making this series for us. And actually, we've had quite a bit of content in the past on the Buddhist Centre Online about climate change, the climate crisis. And I think it's fair to say it's been pretty lively hasn't it on the site when this has come up yes you could say that yeah well I found it quite interesting myself personally probably was last year we posted a piece someone talking about Buddhist practice in the context of issues around climate change and the person who'd written this piece was just a very reflective article bringing in the dharma and what the dharma has to say about these issues and it generated quite a bit of discussion in a way that I was Personally, I was just a little bit surprised by it. it was clear that not everybody, well, I mean, it's like anything, any issue, it's not everyone thinks the same, not everyone in our community thinks the same on these issues. So I'm aware of that. I'm aware that we're starting a discussion right now, which maybe not everyone is taking the same stance on. But I'm hoping that there'll be something in the discussion that we have that people will be able to engage with whatever angle they're coming from. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation too today. I think it will be a very good setup for the week and I'm sure there'll be a number of diverse ways people can approach this as they listen throughout the week. So first I'd like to welcome our first guest, Sarah Khorasani, who's joining us. Uh, Sarah was recommended by our friend Dastany, who's also on the team for this podcast. I got a very enthusiastic email from Dastany recommending her friend, which is let's face it, the best kind of recommendation that you can get. And Sarah wrote a fantastic set of notes to us about this over the weekend. So hi, how are you doing, Sarah? Where are you? What's your lockdown situation like? Thanks for joining us. Hi. Yes, I'm joining you today from my caravan. I live in a static caravan year-round in rural Ayrshire, so just outside of Glasgow. And we have a, a small bit of land here, which we're growing veg on, growing flowers, in fact. So it's nice to hear you speaking about that, Sadaisi, very much with the bees and the bugs in mind and growing trees as well. I'm well. I've been nervous about the podcast, so it was nice today just to be able to put down thinking about it and get out into the garden and onto the land and just the sense of perspective that comes um, being immersed in a bigger landscape and tending to these other beings you know it really helps me step outside of the self-narrative that can heighten the sense of anxiety so I feel really fortunate to have this lifestyle at any time but particularly at this time during lockdown I'm very aware that I have a lot of freedom to be out all day every day on the land and to feel really deeply connected with a lot of other beings even though they are non-human beings I feel very connected and that that's not the case for everyone. Yeah, it's very nice to hear your accent and to know that for people who don't know who haven't listened to this podcast, I'm in the United States, but I'm obviously from Scotland. In fact, this podcast seems a little bit like the Scottish Mafia. Sometimes we, we kind of like manage to insert ourselves in almost every episode. So I'm very glad we've got somebody from Ayrshire. It's also very nice to hear just that evocation of you being in touch with other beings, as it were. Quite often when that comes up in Buddhist practice, it can sound a little bit abstract, but it's definitely not abstract, is it, when you're in a garden and you're just seeing all the other beings, like it's a simple and every day is that very beautiful your fellow guest today our fellow friend is someone i've known on and off for years but not particularly well although he's got one of the nicest voices of anybody in the whole of our order as somebody who listens to a lot of audio and he's coming to us from the north of england from newcastle i was just telling some people in my team this morning that the next town along is called newcastle here on the east coast which was presumably founded in the early 17th century by people from newcastle anyway welcome to akupa how are you doing this afternoon akupa how is your lockdown going hello everyone well i'm in a terraced house in the middle of newcastle with my partner so i've got a yard and i do have a very large area of grassland nearby if you look in the middle of newcastle slightly bizarrely there's about a square mile of grazing land so at least I'm able to get out there every day and have a run and touch the cows. They're my other beings at the moment. I'm aware that both of you have obviously thought and felt and spent a lot of your recent Dharma life at least immersed in the whole world of what Buddhist practice is when it's in relationship to the natural world and to what we are doing to the planet, etc. Akupa, I know you've been quite a strong voice in our order for some years now, writing, thinking, talking, sharing around this. And Sarah, I know you've been living some of your time before you were in Ayrshire up in Ecodharma, which is a community associated with Triratna in the mountains in Spain that revolves around this kind of eco-awareness. I suppose I was interested in what brought you both to this in the first place. Was it just an experience of the natural world? Did you have a particular awakening? What's been your way into this kind of earth awareness in relationship to Buddhist practice? 
So I began studying environmental archaeology at university. That means looking at the organic remains from past sites in order to reconstruct what happened there. Yeah. And I became particularly interested in looking at sites that were pre-human exploitation. So finding out more about what the natural environment, firstly in, in Britain and then in, in Sweden, were like before human impact. And at that time, I think I particularly became interested in how that informs our current conservation approaches, our understanding of what a wild place is or what the natural dynamics of an ecosystem are without massive human intervention. So I think something about that, immersing myself for all those years, I, I studied environmental archaeology and then I did a PhD, sort of peering down a microscope into the distant past and catching this beautiful glimpse of the diversity and abundance of these past ecosystems. And then living in the city and being involved in conservation work, I volunteered with what were called the Dirty Weekenders. And being pretty disappointed in, in a way that most of what we were doing was tidying up parks and making things look a bit prettier. Yeah, just wanting to look beyond the short term conservation goals that I was seeing at that time into something with a much longer perspective, understanding the sort of deep time, the longer ecological rhythms, really. So something of that got me aware of wanting to put my energy into creating healthier ecosystems and changing the way that we relate to the rest of the natural world. But I kept finding that I wasn't being drawn into the classic activist activities, I suppose. I wasn't finding myself campaigning, boycotting, joining protests. There was something maybe of this deep time perspective or something that meant that I was drawn to maybe a slower, more glacial kind of pace and how I wanted to respond to the climate crisis, the ecological crisis that we were in. So it was a very interesting time for me to go to Ecodharma on that basis, because what led me to Ecodharma was a heightening of those tensions. How can the qualities that I find myself nurturing in myself, a kind of patience and sensitivity and a sort of slow, quiet listening to the earth, how does that tie in with this urgent call to action that we're being asked to do in the face of our current crisis? So those were some of the questions that then led me to Ecodharma. And you, Cooper, it's interesting just hearing you say a touch there on even ideas of activism and, and how activism relates to the sort of scale of what one does in response to this with that backdrop of glacial deep time peering down a microscope into the beautiful past and trying to call to mind or imagine what a beautiful future might look like. Do you relate to some of that in terms of your own journey to sense of being active in this area? Yeah, very much. I think the things that Sarah's raised there, there's clearly a tension at the moment between quite an urgent need to sort of shake things up for a change in our collective direction. But also, you know, I've been very conscious of the importance of not losing touch with that long perspective and not losing touch with the sort of deeper changes that need to happen in terms of our relationship with the natural world. And really going back to very, very basic questions of what is life for? Who and what do we think we are? which, of course, is very much the domain of the Dharma, Dharma practice. So, you know, at the moment, because I'm quite committed to running a, a Buddhist centre and so on, that's continued to be my emphasis. And 
you know, over the years in terms of that more outward activism, I suppose I've gone through phases where I've done more or, or less of that. One area I'm particularly interested in, I was reading the newspaper today and I suppose, you know, there's a lot of really grim headlines at the moment around the coronavirus and the sort of devastation it's having across the world. But one thing that seems to be emerging is on the more hopeful end of things is the environment is having a chance to kind of recover from the devastation it's been facing. And I just saw a really short little video of some rare sea turtles in Thailand which are now coming back, being able to breed because there's less tourists around and there's less fishing going on at the moment. And I just find that really interesting because I think that's a pattern that's been repeated. And we've probably heard stories of, well, I think the one about the dolphins in Venice seems to be a bit of a myth, but there was something about Venice and the water being clearer than it ever had been. I think we're at a very particular time. And I guess I'm just really interested to hear your responses to this because it feels like we've been really locked into a system that's kept this way of being the sort of, you know, growth at all costs and having to kind of look after the economy. And now it's almost like the impossible has somehow happened, even in terms of flights, international travel is just completely grounded. And the effect that all of these things are having, in some ways, I don't know, it's kind of raising the possibility of a different kind of world and making it a bit more tangible rather than a sort of a far, far away dream. But obviously, we don't know what's going to happen next. I've seen those memes of nature returning and, you know, some of them might be exaggerated, I don't know. But I think there's something of a metaphor in there, actually, for nature in, inside ourselves returning, certainly for those of us who are in lockdown and not with our usual kind of routines. I know for myself, I'm really cherishing this time of doing a bit more meditation, reading the Dharma and so on, and then just sort of letting the day unfold from there, just sort of letting what I need to do unfold, rather than the approach of sort of waking up and thinking, I've got A, B, C, D to do today, and then fitting meditation somewhere in the, in the gaps. So it's a different way of approaching one's days. There's something more of nature in that. There's something more of wilderness in that. So, you know, those dolphins coming into Venice or whatever it might be. I think there's something kind of internal about that. There's something kind of almost sort of spiritual. It's almost like but that's what people want. People really yearn for that return of nature. But it's not just external, it's internal. I remember when I was younger reading Gary Snyder for the first time when he's talking about the practice of the wild and the old ways and he's talking about the clear cutting of the forests in North America and you just think about the scale of the continent and the size of North America of the United States and there only been one small piece of forestry left that is still virgin forest and I think his thing was just talking about as that symptomatic of a whole modality of living his call was very much what you just said was for people to try and wake up to a different mode inside themselves that was much more aligned with the rhythms of the natural world I'm interested to see I'm assuming you often come up against people who are either super hopeful about the future or depressed about the future or don't think there's a problem at all. With this kind of tension you mentioned of trying to balance up a sense of what you can do most authentically with that giant perspective of time behind you, what's your own response to the tantalising possibility of the world being different after we exit lockdown? I read an article the other day and the author was talking about how we're in this interesting liminal space. He was liking it to being in the underworld and that it's unfamiliar and it's deep. We're going down into the roots of our existence in a way and we don't know what comes next and that there are these two groups, there are these two kinds of beings that emerge in that space. One of them being the ghosts, so ghosts being creatures who 
are in denial that the existence they once knew has come to an end and they're, they're seeking to go back, and that the other beings are voyagers, he calls them voyagers, those who are looking forward whilst also taking in everything that's going on around them, really taking in the suffering of the moment, but able to lean into change, so be in a place of change. I really like this. I think that this ability to be with uncertainty is really important. I don't have any grand plans in a way for how I'm going to act. <laughs> I sort of feel like I'm climbing a staircase in the dark. I put my foot on one step and then I know the next one will be there, but I don't have a plan. <laughs> but I do trust what's happening. So a good friend said to me recently, a good friend being Daphne, when I was having all of these tensions going on that I need to sign up to volunteer and I need to get out there and do something. And what she said to me is, Sarah, what you need to do is to learn to trust your intention to love and liberate all beings. And that blew me away, actually. That touched on that tension in a way that I don't think anything else has. How do we come back to nurturing that? intention to live for the benefit of others and therefore whatever actions arise out of that we can learn to trust yeah gosh it throws up so many things well actually a couple of threads was there's the mythic aspect of that the ghosts and the voyagers it's very beautiful imagery reminds me of robert mcfarland stuff about the well he calls it underland but the underworld stuff and also that aspect of you don't have a plan you're just the days unfolding, as you said, Cooper, not living in the mode of you're in charge and at the centre of things and you have to have a plan. And at the same time, you can have this amazing intention to live for the sake of the liberation of all beings. That sort of connection or that sort of taking part in just the natural flow of a day or the natural flow of a life, I suppose, is one of the central ideas in Buddhism, right? That you're just part of an interconnected flow of arising and passing away that's going on all the time. But it seems important that there is a mythic aspect to that. And I'm aware, Akupa, you've done some work around the whole Shambhala myth in Buddhism when it comes to this. Do you have anything to say about that? Just picking up on what Sarah said there about, you know, not having a plan, but trusting to intention. And I think that's where myth comes in, the idea of the Shambhala warrior, which I think comes from the Kala Chakra Tantra, I believe, originally. Basically, that is your intention. And that will emerge that if we're not the ones to bring about change in the world, then who will? I was quite struck just yesterday morning, we had a kind of order Zoom meditation led by Sabuti. And there's one phrase that he used I'm paraphrasing, I hope I've got it more or less right. Put it very simply, he said that the only way that we can face the suffering in the world is by being involved in ending it. And I thought that was such a very simple, but there's so much to unpack from that. In a way, the Shambhala myth is the Bodhisattva myth, I think. The idea that we not only practice for ourselves, for our own happiness and calm and liberation and so on, but that that is the most powerful thing that we can do to help the world in the situation of coronavirus, climate change, our whole relationship to nature. Mm. I did an interview the other day, which won't come out till next week in podcast land with some friends from Australia and New Zealand. And they were talking quite a lot about the Shambhala myth as a way to redefine the idea of heroism and activism in that sense in our culture, which I found very interesting. I suppose one question that comes up often is, is there a place for hope in this? I noticed looking at the Earth Day site that they lead with hope and optimism. That's the words at the top of their homepage. And a bit of me, I noticed my own response to it was kind of a bit mixed. <laughs> it was kind of like... 
hmm, you know, is that what I would lead with? Coming back to the Shambhala warrior myth, I think of the work at Ecodharma is very much drawing on that myth. And I mean, my understanding of that myth is that there comes a time when the earth is in danger and that at that time, these warriors go into training and they train in two weapons, which are compassion and wisdom and insight. And I've been thinking about that recently. I think something that Ecodharma helped me to do was bring the mythic and the sort of practical <laughs> into relation with each other. So that is a myth that really moves me and I really resonate with and galvanizes my energy, but it doesn't tell me what to do. <laughs> I think Sarah's right in a way that myths don't tell us, they don't tell us what to do, but they sort of empower us to do it. And that one thing about the Shambhala warrior myth is that the weapons are wisdom and compassion. So, you know, it's very important in a way to go back you know, this is a spiritual quest in a way that whatever outward activity we do springs from a sense of understanding about reality and the world and a sense of sort of connectedness. So, you know, come the end of lockdown, similar sort of question. I don't have any plans either, but I think it is just trusting to the intention. If we trust to our Dharma practice, then when facing whatever situation comes in the world, we learn the point is to do something, <laughs> whether that is outward activism or focusing on the spiritual elements or developing new technologies and new forms and new forms of community and so on, you know, whatever it is, then engage, but always learn, always sort of come back to the essential in a way. What I've seen to be true or what I feel to be true is that it's not necessarily the loudest actions which have an effect but the most wholehearted ones the ones that take along the whole of yourself and bring you to change your life the very yeah it seeps into the very way that you live what's needed is a sort of whole life response mm -hmm. a kind of whole whole being response where nothing's left out it's not just the expression of this opinion or that opinion that's the bodhisattva path and that's what's needed in the mm. present sort of ecological mm. crisis is yeah. just people to respond with their whole being their whole life every aspect i've been reflecting a bit on how do we bring our understanding of the interconnectedness down into every strand of our life how do we make it so that we know it in our bones rather than just as an intellectual concept so i think this relates maybe to what what we're saying about that whole wholehearted well-being approach for me my experience of living closer to the land means that that truth is everywhere or it's more visible i don't think we're ever further away from that truth it's the truth whether we live in a flat in the city or we live in a tent on a hillside the visibility of the threads of connectedness seem to be clearer when you live a simpler life in connection with land where you're growing your own food and making your own compost so there's something about creating more conditions under which as dharma practitioners we can immerse ourselves in this kind of life for longer than the space of our retreat in order to let it become just like absorbed into our bodies that's very much something that's been on my mind as well you know there's so much good things happening in ecodharma and, and buddha fields and other projects 
in relation to sort of practice with the land, practice on the land. But I do sort of sense that the time may be coming where people more and more want this, as Sarah says, not just as a thing that we do on retreat, but that is sort of woven into the fabric of our community much more as Turatna Buddhist community. We're quite urban, you know, with those very notable exceptions. We're quite an urban-based Buddhist community. I do wonder whether the time has come just to try and introduce more of a connection with the land. Certainly it's something that I'm interested in exploring being part of an urban centre before the lockdown. We were getting involved in tree planting and so on. But I'd really love to take it further. And I've had a number of conversations recently with people involved in urban centres who are beginning, I think, to feel that more and more, that perhaps there are ways in which we could make that connection with nature increasingly part of our practice and communication of the Dharma. Something that comes up for me listening to this around grief and what can hold grief, whether it's individual grief or societal grief or species grief. I've been talking to our team this week about a close friend of mine from childhood who died of COVID-19 last week. And it's been a very interesting experience to be working and doing normal well, normal life through the abnormality of the lockdown and not really managing to find the right context for something that can hold an experience of grief. But yesterday I went on a long walk and found a cemetery and was lying on the earth in the cemetery. And I had this very strong sense of how there's nothing can hold an experience like that, like the earth itself. I mean, I'm sure it sounds super basic in a way, but it's not just the literal groundedness of it, but also just the animal relief of it just being in touch with something like that. And it does seem to me, Cooper, when you're talking there about the way we conceive of our centres and our practice and our community, that it's almost like if we're going to be part of the response to suffering that Spooty was talking about, where you're doing something about it, it really has to be in relationship to the everydayness of the earth in the way that, say, Sarah, you're talking about just earth under your fingers, etc. Yeah, for me, in a way, it relates back to the earlier conversation about living more in line with the sort of natural cycles and natural rhythms of the earth. I found living, this is the first year I've spent in a caravan and I had a very quiet winter, which I feel allowed me to go into that kind of deep, ancient part of the cycle where everything goes inward. The energy of the plants goes down into the roots, it goes down into the soil. It's a time where things get to turn over and mature and do things in an earthy sort of way. It's also a time that I associated somewhat with things like grief, despair, these emotions that I think can stay really, what I experience them quite sort of low and deep in the body. So there's something about living more in line with those cycles allows us to experience all the dimensions of what it means to be human, including the darker ones these big ones that we don't often find space for in the midst of our everyday lives. Mm. I can certainly relate to that sort of presence of nature as something that kind of holds and heals. And again, I think it's something that I found, you know, at times where I've been practising in nature, put a field or on retreat or just by myself somewhere, that it does lead to a sort of sense of a kind of presence in nature of something alive. And this is something that, you know, Sandra actually does sort of talk about it. You have to go looking for those quotes, but it does seem to be something that Buddhist practice sort of brings you to is an openness and sensitivity to the livingness and even the sort of possibility of something perhaps you could even call communication with the natural world. 
yeah, the idea of, in a way, just lying on the earth and that sort of holding it. It's, it's mysterious, isn't it? You know, you can't sort of put words to that, but it's there, I think. I think in most people's experience, we do have a connection with nature. Perhaps it's just a matter of sort of understanding it a bit more and, and thinking about it a bit more. I think there's something in what we're talking about a bit that we just naturally do that sort of thing, like lie upon the earth. I was thinking back to when I worked in environmental education. And to begin with, I came up with all these elaborate activities for the kids to do when we were out in wild places. And then I learned that they didn't need me to do that. They just were able to have a very natural response to the places that we were in. I remember taking them to see this four or five hundred year old chestnut tree. You know, it's a group of 10-year-olds, they were all really noisy, and then we approach the tree and they just fall into quietness. And I just find that fascinating. The way they moved was different. The way they touched the tree was different. It wasn't anything that they'd been taught. It was some kind of natural relatedness. And they were picking up on something in that, that place, that atmosphere. And yeah, I don't know if we could ever understand that. I'm kind of struck by what you're saying and actually also what Kupo was saying. Yeah, just something about this particular time as well. I'm finding that in a way, when I suppose our usual distractions have dropped away, there's a bit of simplicity there. And I think there's something about what you were saying, Sarah, about it's not something that we've been taught, you know, this connection, this falling silent. It feels like something that we have to kind of clear the way in order to get back to that kind of natural appreciation that's there. And again, I suppose I've probably said this on podcasts before, but just going on a walk, the daily allowed walk to the local park. And there's something about that. There's just, I don't know, there's a kind of a renewed sense of wonder in terms of nature. And I don't think I'm the only person experiencing it going on a walk around the park. I feel like I've almost seen things for the first time again. And it's partly to do with, I guess, the context of everything kind of feeling, well, for me, I suppose, where I am right now, I'm, I'm on my own and sort of reaching out for connection and for aliveness and being in a park and just really seeing how many things are alive here and how they're growing. It's really apparent at the moment, you know, things are really coming into bloom. There's something about making the space for that and making the space for that in our everyday lives in a way that I guess for me, maybe that will be one thing I would like to take beyond lockdown is... How do you not lose touch with the nature that's already present in the everyday? And it doesn't have to be something that we're necessarily taught in a way. It is actually already there. It just feels like a clearing away of something else. When you were talking earlier, Sanji, I see here about the dandelions on the lawn and all things like that. It reminded me of one time I used to work as a Buddhist chaplain in prisons. And I went into a guy's cell for a cup of tea one evening and he took me straight to the window and he said, look, look. And outside there was just this barren concrete yard. But outside of his window, there was a dandelion that forced its way up through the concrete. That guy got so much just from that dandelion, <laughs> you know, in a way, the complete deprivation in terms of nature and so on. But just that one dandelion was enough for him to contact this force of nature. It was quite a beautiful thing. Really. I have been really struck by that. We define our weeds and things that we don't want in our experience. I was at an event not that long ago where they were talking about this whole idea of turning things into arcs. I don't know if you've come across this idea of just letting wildness happen, letting nature grow. And there's something just so, so simple about that, you know, that we're constantly trying to make things look pretty, control things in a particular way, but we're actually, in some ways, we're doing more harm than good. 
and then just to let things flourish, to let things be. I don't know, there's something in that. It seems like a lesson for us internally as well. Often we're really trying to control things in a very willful way and making ourselves have particular experiences in a very controlled way. But actually another way is this idea of transforming what's already there rather than trying to cut it down or fix it into a particular box. This beautiful image of that dandelion in the barren wilderness. <laughs> he did an interview with Abhay Vadra about painting and he was talking about the playwright Dennis Potter at the end of his life or towards the end of his life, given this quite well-known interview where he just talked about looking out of his window and seeing Blossom and just this almost aching, painful, but beautiful sense of connection to life itself that wasn't really personal in that sort of way for him. He was just right at the end of life, taking part in it more and more fully. There's a question you posed in one of your sets of notes, Sarah, around what makes a good ancestor. Around where I live, it's coming up for the 400th anniversary of this particular region, which is in some senses ludicrously young if you're from Europe, but also quite old if you're in North America from a post-European point of view. But of course, there have been people living in this land for thousands of years. And one of the big awarenesses in the celebrations is trying to include perspectives from the people who lived here before we did. And one of the main things you often hear in the United States is the seven generations thing of like trying to be aware of seven generations previous and also seven generations hence. And it just struck me listening to you talk there, both of you, that actually the sense of that being a good ancestor doesn't come from the people as much as it comes from being in relationship to the land and the earth. Again, you're taking part in something rather than, as I see, it's centred on you and what you decide to do with it. It's not about your agency somehow. When I was pondering that question for myself, I went to this Neolithic chambered cairn, which I just discovered in the woods near my house during lockdown. So it's a burial place from thousands of years ago. And I sat there and I did the exercise from the work that reconnects where you sort of dialogue with. Well, I think in that you write yourself a letter from a being 200 years in the future. I sort of had a little dialogue with an imaginary being of the future in this very ancient place. And what struck me was that, yeah, they weren't saying anything to do with do this or work for that particular cause, or it was nothing very specific. And one of the things that came out of it for me was this line that was to keep alive the lineage of love and sensitivity, which is very broad. <laughs> but it, again, it's something to do with connection is to do with relationship not to do with any kind of explicit activity any explicit action that deep time perspective is something i've been thinking of you know just in relation to spiritual lineage as well that you know here we are it's a very enlivening perspective you know that we are the generation dealing with this nobody else is in terms of the buddhist lineage you know we are the ones facing what's going on in the world it's us or nobody. <laughs> so having that sort of sense of, well, what's the best that I can do for future generations? How do we hand on what we've been given? And that means I need to practice more deeply. It means that I need to practice Sangha more deeply. One thing in particular, thinking about the sort of resilience of our own community as the Tarana Buddhist community. Perhaps we need to really think about how robustly we can hand the Dharma on, how strong a Sangha we can leave for future generations. I can't justify this in a way, but it feels very important to me that we connect with the land in doing so, that, you know, it's down to our individual practice, deeper practice of Sangha, but that we need a connection with land to get that sort of robustness to hand the Dharma on. It makes me think about the different ways of 
teaching the Dharma and relating back to what we were talking about in terms of there's some things that can't be taught in a way, like awe or a very basic relationship to the earth. Those things are things that we can create the conditions to allow that to happen within. So it's something like in addition to the ways that we teach the Dharma at the moment as a community, what other conditions could we bring into place that allow it to be communicated on other levels and I too feel like connection with land would be a really important aspect of that. This is completely off the wall but I've just got a text to say that I've become a great uncle during the course of this interview. (laughs) Do you you notice any more grey hairs? (laughs) The ancestors are being made as we speak. Congratulations. It is a lovely image. I was struck by what you said a minute ago, Sarah, about just being in a lineage, thinking about the being in the future, in a lineage of sensitivity and awareness and love. And that sounds also like a bit of a definition of this Shambhala training that you were both talking about earlier, just you're training yourself in wisdom and love. And it's not abstract. It's entirely to do with that's how you set up a lineage that's effective, is you train yourself in it in real life, and then you pass it on. It's an intriguing note to start to leave it on with how does the land get involved in that? Maybe that's a good question for our community to consider is what's our relationship to the land in passing on the Dharma and taking part in that kind of lineage? How do we leave your great niece, Cooper? I think in a way, as Sarah said, you can't tell people this. There's just something about practising the Dharma. When you're sitting, being immersed in nature, having our sort of senses immersed in nature, practising meditation, reflecting on the truths of the Dharma something happens, something comes through, something kind of beyond words. You can't reduce that to a sort of formula. But certainly, you know, it's something that the Buddha practised in nature. All the great teachers have sort of said, you know, go off into the forest. Sangharashita said it. He sort of urged us to immerse ourselves in nature. So I think in a way, we just need to sort of follow our heart, just do that, and then see what arises. There's something about the liminal space, isn't there? I know this has come up in various conversations. The Buddha does his teaching between the jungle, the edge of the jungle and the village. He teaches in between the two. And I've also thought that was a really interesting location for the Buddhist teaching. Like he's not going completely into the village and he's not retreating completely into the jungle. And there's a kind of meeting between two different perspectives and modes and worlds that happens there. Well, it feels like even though it's a goodly length conversation, it feels that we're only just at the start of something. So a nice place to kick off our Earth Week here on the podcasts. I'm very grateful to both Sarah and the Koopa for giving us their time, particularly in the midst of such drama as suddenly new beings being born that one has a responsibility to. The Koopa, that's kind of the perfect thing to happen. It's like watching the dandelion grow into the wilderness. Yeah, so thanks very much to you, Koopa. Hope you and your great niece are well. Thank you. And thanks to you for joining us too, Sarah. There's so much that we could talk about and there's so much that resonates with this perspective of living and having deep connection to the earth and with the seasons. I have this poem just as a nice way to wind down. I thought I'd read it. It's Wendell Berry. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here. Thanks for that. That's beautiful. And thanks for taking part today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It's been enjoyable. <laughs> Dare I say. <laughs>
That's what we like to hear. And thanks to you too, Sadaisi, for coming and helping us have this conversation today. Yeah, great. Great to be part of it. I feel like I've got a lot from hearing both of your perspectives. And particularly, I think I'll be going away thinking about both the ordinary, but also the mythic. And I suppose how we need to be in connection with both in order to respond effectively. Thank you all. I've really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for setting it up. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in, for listening. Yeah, do take some time if you can this week just to connect to the Earth Week podcasts. And we'll be here all week just trying to hold that space, that space of awareness around the challenges facing our species, our planet. It's lovely to hear the kind of hopefulness of that perspective, that we can actually do something authentic and genuine that matters without that being tied to a particular outcome. It's very, very lovely. We hope you're all well, wherever you are. We know well that the challenges of the times go on for many people, different kinds of grief, different things they're exposed to in this particular crisis. But yeah, we're bearing you in mind. Join us if you can through the week for meditation, for conversation and stories, a sense of community. We will be beginning a new home retreat this coming Friday, April the 24th, based around a set of practices called the Brahma Viharas, which is really practicing love from different camera angles, as it were different depth practices of love. So there'll be a whole week of resources for you to dip into as and when you need them. And we look forward to seeing you online, to hearing your voices. And in the meantime, be well. We'll speak to you soon. Bye.